Let's pray. Father, we come with open hearts. We come before you to receive. We ask, Lord, through your spirit that you would bring us conviction of your word, that you would change us, that you would be glorified in us and through us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, some years ago, my sister and I would play a friendly game called Who is the Favorite? Would it be me or my sister? Which one of us is the favorite child? I'm not quite sure how it started. It probably was with me. And we have long since stopped playing this childish game. But it would go something like this. You know, I'm mom and dad's favorite because... I'm firstborn. My sister would say, no, no, I'm favorite because I'm the baby of the family. And I'd say, well, I live further away. No, I live closer. And so we would go on this way. We took this banter too seriously because we both know full well that I was, and still am, the favorite. (laughs) No, in reality, there is no favorite child. If there was, that would be my parents' grandchildren. They'd be the favorite ones. We can laugh at this, but favoritism can become dangerous when it is taken too far. When it's carried beyond a game, it can bring division and even pain. And the scriptures abound with examples of favoritism gone wrong. When Isaac and Rebekah became parents, they ended up each favoring a different child. In Genesis 25, it says the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob, he was content to stay at home in the tents. And then it says this, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac favored Esau, and Rebekah favored Jacob. And we know how that turned out. It turned out like this, if you remember the story in Genesis 27. When it came time for Isaac in his old age to bless his firstborn Esau, what happened? Rebekah, who favored Jacob, hatched a plan to deceive her husband and to have her favorite son Jacob come and steal the blessing by pretending to be Esau. When Jacob's deception became known, Esau was angry. He was enraged. And he wanted his father's blessing. But his father said this to him in Genesis 27. Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. That's this picture here. Painted in 1638 of Jacob pretending to be Esau with Rebekah beside her husband, knowing what was going on. So Esau, we read, held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. That is, my father has died and the days of mourning will be finished. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Thereafter, Rebekah told Jacob to flee and protect him from Esau's rage. You see, favoritism taken too far can be dangerous 
can be serious. It can bring division, even suffering. And this is where we join Paul in 1 Corinthians. This is the impetus for his writing, or one of the reasons for his writing. Because something was happening in this church of Corinth that greatly distressed Paul, and he needed to address it. The church was playing favorites, and as a result, there was quarreling and division. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're reading a few verses. I haven't put all the verses on the slides because it's just too many verses to do that. But if we could look at verse 10. In Paul's opening to the letter, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And another, still, another says, I follow Christ. What was happening in this church? What was going on? We can imagine the arguments going something like this. And watch the logic. Well, we follow Paul because he's the one who brought us the gospel. He sacrificed everything to come and to share the gospel to our city and to us. He is our first teacher. He's a father of our faith. He planted this church that we're in. So, of course, we're going to follow him. Others would chime in and they say, yeah, you know, you're right. Paul did found this church. But he's gone. He left. And God now has brought Apollos to be our pastor and our shepherd. Our church has grown so much with his dynamic and powerful preaching. We follow Apollos. And someone in the back may lift up the voice and say, you know, you guys, you don't get it. You've never heard Cephas preach and teach. Sure, Paul and Apollos are fine leaders. They're fantastic leaders. I agree. But Peter, the apostle Peter, is the one we should follow. After all, Peter knew Jesus personally. Can we find a better leader than someone who knew Jesus personally? Who walked with Jesus? When Peter preaches, it's like you're right there with Jesus. All the personal stories, all the things that we hear. And remember, this is before the New Testament is written. Before the Gospels are written. And so others would point out, well, you know, we follow Christ. That's who we're going to follow. And the crowd in the Corinth church would say, of course we follow Christ. Of course he's our leader. But hasn't he chosen and sent us human leaders to follow? Yeah, you're right. It's Paul. It's Apollos. It's Cephas. And around they would go, quarreling and divided over who we should follow. And then somebody in the group turns to you. Are you in the back? Are you over here? And they say, well, what do you think? Who should we follow? Who are we following? How would you answer that? Well, now we begin to see how Paul shapes his answers. His first answer in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, deals with favoritism. And it reads this way. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. 
but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready to receive it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? In other words, are you not acting unspiritual? And so Paul alights on this. He says, what does Christian immaturity look like? What does it look like? Well, it's thinking about the world, having a worldly focus. It's preferring milk and not solid food, which means that you're unable even now to digest the full counsel of God. At the end of Hebrews 5, it says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But food, solid food, is for the mature, for those who have their, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So the evidence of immaturity is jealousy, strife, fighting, picking your champion, Paul, Apollos. What does it sound like today? Oh, I, I follow John MacArthur. What? No, it's John Piper. Come on. Oh, I follow Chip Ingram. Or an oldie but goodie. I follow Chuck Swindoll. Oh, no, they used to say, no, it's Francis Chan. Come on, get with it. They're all not correct answers. They show immaturity. And so Paul goes on to his second answer. We're getting closer now to the point of this message about building wisely. Paul says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Notice he doesn't say, who after all is Apollos? Who is Paul? It's not who they are, it's their function, what they are. They're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I, that is Paul, planted the seed, I planted the word. Apollos came and he's watered the word. But God has been the one making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants, Paul, the one who waters, Apollos, others, pastors who came after Paul, have one purpose, the same purpose, and they will each will be rewarded according to their own labor. So what does Christian maturity look like? Well, let me go back to the slides here. It's understanding that we're just servants. Servants who serve God in his gifts, out of his strength. It's understanding that God is the one who causes the growth. He's the one who produces the results. Our job is simply to tend the garden. God causes it to grow. It is having the same purpose, to work together. And we are rewarded based upon our labors sign of maturity as we move closer to our message focus and purpose Paul completes his answer by saying this for we 
are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me, Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. His answer is, we follow the foundation. We follow the one who is our foundation. He is the one who gives us the gifts. And in modern vernacular, Paul would be a church planter. Apollos would be a church builder. And if you, if you study these things, there, are, there are, are men who's gifted at starting churches, but their gift is not building them. Others, they don't know how to plant a church, but they can take a church and they can make it grow because God blesses them with that gift. And so Paul's answer to favoritism is to call the disciples back to the foundation of life. Only the immature quarrel about these things. And now Paul explains to the church of Corinth, and by extension to us, as Christ's disciples, that we must build our lives upon the one true foundation. So we come for this morning's question. This is a question we're trying to answer uh, that the text brings to us. How can you build your life wisely? How do you invest your life in ways that will be rewarded by your Lord? And I want you to know this. God our Father wants to reward you. He wants to build your life. He wants you to build your life wisely. He wants you to be better than you think you are. He wants you to become what he has always seen that you are. He wants you to know and serve him more deeply and completely. So he tells us, build wisely. He tells us how we should construct our lives and the life of our church. Because remember, God causes the growth. So Paul leaves us, or begins, introduces his whole idea with a challenge. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon it that is the foundation. Notice here, let each one. It's your responsibility. No one can build, build your life for you. It's your responsibility. Others can help you build, can share in that process, to train you, to to bless you, to support you, but ultimately it's your responsibility. Notice it says, take care how you do this. Taking care is thinking wisely, using consideration, having purpose, planning, not doing things haphazardly or thoughtlessly. Jesus in Luke 14 said this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Hmm. Can I, can I build this or not? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see him will mock, saying, this man began to build and he wasn't able to finish. Take care how you build. Build wisely. Building upon the foundation means you don't just build anywhere. You choose a specific spot where the foundation is. And that ensures what you do and how you live is centered on this foundation. Because a proper building always sits on a sure foundation. If it doesn't, it's going to fall apart. But what is this foundation? Paul says this, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? 
We don't often talk about a foundation of our life. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't come up in conversation very often. So I'll put it in this way. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Whom do you rely on and depend on? What is your raison d'etre? Why do you exist? Why do you make the choices that you make? That's your foundation. The answer to that is your foundation. Some would say, well, if I think about it, it's my career. Uh, It's getting advancements. I'm working extra hours and taking some courses. If I look at my time, that's basically what I'm building my life on. Or it's my family. The absolutely most important thing to me is my family. And I'm building into my family's life. Building a brand new home to support all the kids we have running around. I'm not married, by the way. I'm just using fictitious. <laughs> but what does Paul say? He says, the nature of our foundation is Jesus. This is not something new. Something God said well, one day, you know, I, this, let's, let's do this. No, this has been before time began. Christ, the cornerstone, is what God already decided to do a long time ago, before creation existed. And why does Paul have to say all this? Because the church needs to be reminded of the foundation. And Isaiah 28, 16, God says this. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone. Not just any stone, a tested stone. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Jesus himself says the same thing, that he is the foundation. A very familiar story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, that is the words of Christ, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. As I was reading, did you notice that both people heard the words of Christ? It wasn't the hearing that was the issue. It was putting them into effect. The first man puts them into practice. The second did not. So Christ is saying he is the foundation. Put my words into practice. Paul continues in Ephesians and says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The foundation is Christ, eternal life in him. So I'm going to ask you the obvious question, do you have this foundation for your life? Is Christ the reason why you do things? Is he your raison d'etre? How do you have this foundation? Maybe you're sitting here going, you know, and I think about it, uh, I can't say that I have my foundation. It's not difficult to do, but it's expensive. 
We're to humble ourselves before God. We're to admit our need. You know, God, I need you. My life's not where it should be. It means to submit and surrender your life to Jesus. It means to ask Christ to be your foundation. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, which means confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, not just up here, but in your heart, that God raised him from the dead. Now, I urge you this morning, don't wait a minute longer. You don't know how much time you have, what will happen tomorrow. Give your life to Christ now, today. Because God is waiting for you. For Jesus came to those who were weary. And he said, come and I'll give you rest. And so the one foundation that is laid in our hearts is Christ. And Paul is basing all of this on a group that have this foundation. Already. And he says, now begin to build in this foundation. Now there is a right way and there's a wrong way to build. You've got the foundation. Praise God. He knows you. You're his child. Wonderful. Now what do you do? Well, you begin to build your life. And it says this in the text. Paul says, there are some building materials available. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So what's the right way? Paul's saying you should build your lives using gold, silver, precious stones. What does that mean? I read this and like, okay, God, um, this seems kind of vague. Uh, It'd be nice to have a, a list of things that I should be doing. And there's a reason why it's not there, because God builds us with the same elements, but in different ways. When you think of gold, silver, or precious stones, how many would love to have some gold, silver, or precious stones? None of you. Okay, can you give it to me? Um, if you don't want them, I, I could use them. These are valuable materials. They cost a fortune in some cases. So building your life wisely costs you something. It's going to be expensive to do that in a whole variety of ways. You can ask yourself, well, when I look at Jesus and how he walked on the earth, how did he live his life? What priorities did he demonstrate? Because he's the perfect man. He's our savior. Let's watch how he lived his life. And how would you summarize how Christ lived his life. We think about it. Somebody asked you at work tomorrow and said, you go to church, right? You're a churchgoer. This, uh, this Jesus you, uh, you follow. What's that about? What did he do that was so special that you would go and spend a Sunday morning in a church? How would you summarize his life? Well, I summarized it in this way. Christ lived, continued to live, in complete obedience to the will of the Father. Everything that God wanted him to do, Christ did. We look at Paul and how he imbibed this. In 1 Corinthians 2, just before this particular chapter, he says that when I, Paul, came to you, Corinthians, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you as testimony about God. For I resolved, I purposed, I took consideration to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. That's all I talked about. That's why I came. Not about the food, not about the culture, or the language, or hanging out and doing this, having coffee. It's all for the same purpose. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on him in wisdom, but on God's power. Because when Paul shared, God brought conviction of belief and faith in his audience. Paul didn't do that. God did it. And Paul resolved to focus his life at that moment in Corinth on the gospel. Some years ago, and I want to make this kind of, uh, not simplified, but you can get a handle on it. Some years ago, I don't know where I read it or somebody told me, but they said there are, there are two things that last forever. There are only two things that that are going to last for eternity. Do you know what they are? You probably can get one right away, right? It's God. He lasts forever. His word lasts forever. So, building wisely means investing in God. Invest yourself in God. Knowing him more fully, worshiping him, studying his word, loving him, spending time with him. That's building wisely. It was read earlier by, by uh, one of the young people, Matthew 6.6. 6. Jesus said it. When you pray, go into your closet. God who sees you will reward you. That's building wisely. Is this the priority of your life? Is knowing God and investing yourself in him, is that your priority? Is that your passion, your focus? Does that consume your thoughts? Or is it Facebook? Or is it uh, Liz fashion or the cinema or the news that you watch and it does something because it's so horrible to see? God says, no, look up to me. Invest your life in me. That's building wisely. The other thing that lasts forever, believe it or not, is God's work. If we invest ourselves in God's work, then we are building wisely. And what is God's work? We're all examples of God's work. You're here not by accident. God knew you'd be here. God brought you here. You may think, no, he didn't. I got up and I said, I'm going to church today. (laughs) Well, yeah, you did, but who put the thought in your mind? God did. He brought you here. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did he leave the glories of heaven to come here as a human being? For you. To bring you into relationship with the Father. To gather worshiping disciples. Now, there's a story I remember, I don't know where I heard it from, or even if it's true. But it's a story of the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones on a train heading off somewhere. And he was reading his Bible as the train clicked-clacked along. And one of his students was actually in the back of the train and saw him. And the student gathered his courage up and picked up his newspaper and his magazine and he kind of walked up and approached Dr. Jones and he, can I sit down? Yeah, sure, sit down. I'm one of your students. Oh, great. Uh, He says, Dr. Jones, can I ask you one question? He said, how can I become a great preacher like you? And I'll embellish a bit. Dr. Jones looks up, glasses, says to him, well, you have to read this book and not those magazines and newspapers if you want to be a great preacher. 
You have to invest yourself in God's word. It has to be your life filling you. That's investing wisely. That's building your life wisely. Now, if that's the right way, what's the wrong way? What's the wood, the hay, the straw? Because the test of fire burns up these things. When I compare wood and gold, well, these are common things. Straw and hay. They're not very expensive. They're common. They won't stand up under adversity. They could be fine materials to use in certain circumstances, but not to build your life wisely before God. Now, these can appear to be adequate or even a good way to invest your life, but in the end they fail and will not endure. Let me give you an example. Here's the logic. You know, I'm going to put my career first, going to advance in my company, I'm going to make more money, and then I can give it away. That's how God is using me, and he may be doing that. But if you're doing that and you're saying, I don't have time to get up Sunday morning and go to church, I don't crack God's word open. I don't read his word. I don't go to a life group or a prayer meeting. I haven't got time for that. I'm working. Is that investing wisely? Now, that's an example. Paul doesn't give examples because he knows full well that we ourselves, before God, he shows us the ways we're to invest in our lives. Because there's an ultimate test coming for all of us. And the ultimate test is the value of what we've done with our whole lives. Each one's work will become manifest. Remember I said it's each one, your responsibility? Not my responsibility or anybody else's, it's yours. It will become manifest for the day will disclose it. What is, what is the day? What's this day? It's judgment day. When the books are opened, you stand before God and we all will, trembling in his presence, on our faces probably, I know it will be, and God says, let's look at your life. Ah, you are redeemed. How have you spent the life I gave you as a follower of me? Well, if you built wisely, the fire will test it. And it will show what kind of work it's done. You know, we, we say this common expression of language. Uh, trial by fire. Test your mettle. A test of one's ability and character to perform well under pressure. It's a bit dated now, but you know, the Lord of the Rings, the ring was only revealed in fire, the writing on the inside. Fire has a not purification in this sense, but it's a demonstration of the quality of your work. So the results of building wisely is reward. Each person's work, your work, and no one else's. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, the fire, the testing, he will receive a reward. That's the criteria. Does the work survive? The criteria is not the reward. The criteria, does, does it survive? Does God's word survive? Yes. Does God's work in people's lives survive? Yes. Well, then I want to invest in those things. Have you ever received a reward? What is a reward? A reward is not something that's demanded. It's something freely given. If you walk along behind somebody and they're at the metro or walking on the street and they drop their wallet and you, oh, you pick it up and you say, hey, you, you dropped your wallet. Do you expect the person to say, thank you, here's, here's some money for doing that. If that's your motivation, 
you may not do it. You may take the whole wallet yourself. I'll get more money this way than giving it back to the person. If you think of the parallel towns, when the master gave the, his three servants five, two, and one talents and said, go off and invest it while I'm away. And he came back and the first two had actually invested it wisely. And he said to them what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You're rewarded. The servant who buried it and didn't do anything, he didn't receive any reward. Yet he was still a servant. Jesus himself teaches on reward. In Matthew 16, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. That's future. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Paul echoes this. He says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. And the last book in Revelation says this. Look, I am coming. Jesus is coming. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. Building wisely, investing in God's word, investing in his work. What does that do for us? It gives us a gift to present to the Father. We don't seek the reward. We seek it to live for God, using his gifts that he's given us for his glory. I'll explain it in this way. How many of you have received a gift from a young child, four or five years old, three years old? They bring it to you and it's this odd, scribbled picture. You're wondering, what is this? Or a piece of crude pottery that's all kind of mashed up and they... They, they bring it with a smile and say, this is for you. Even though it's a childish effort, that's not the point. You value it. You put it on your fridge to show people. Put it on your wall in your office and go, hey, this, this, is, this is given to me. Why? Because it was made for you and given to you out of love. What does a child receive? The reward is just the joy of doing it, the pleasure of seeing your smile. We want to give God gifts on that day. We want to say, Lord, I took the gifts you gave me and I invested it in your kingdom, in you and in your word and in people. And, and look, this is what I'm giving you as a gift. That's the reward. That's the joy. There are other things too that Scripture does talk about. My point for this morning is that God displays our gifts that we give him because it brings him joy, it brings him pleasure, because we become like him, because he gives us gifts. It brings him glory. If that's the reward, what's the loss? What if your work doesn't survive? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is a very important verse for a couple of reasons. Again, it's each one's work is going to be measured. If it's not good works... It's not the kind of work that lasts for eternity. It's going to burn up. And he will suffer loss. No reward. I don't know if you've, if you've seen the aftermath of some forest fires. People allowed back into their communities, to their homes, and their homes are gone. And what does it show? A foundation. It shows a foundation. A concrete foundation. It's burned. It's chipped. It's broken. But it's still there. 
the person suffered loss, but the foundation is still there. What Paul is saying is, once you have the foundation of Christ in your life, you're not going to lose that. Because we don't get ourselves redeemed by our own efforts, by our own works. Because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Once you've given your life to him, it's in his hand. And no one can take it from his hand. We're not saved by works, but God's grace. And in his grace, he gives you gifts. He's given you special talents, abilities, desires. He made you unique. Why? So that you can serve him out of those gifts. He's given you the capacity to construct a full and fruitful life built upon the foundation of Christ. You see, building wisely is what he does in us. He draws us to his word. He draws us to serve him in his strength. So the choice is yours. And we want to help you build wisely. So as we conclude this morning, I said a lot of things, and I want to make sure that I boil this down so you can take away something and say, that guy talks a lot, but at least, at least he said this that I'm going to walk away with. A simple summary. First, God wants to reward you. That's his desire. He wants to bless you. And this is not a health and wealth thing. Absolutely not. Suffering exists. It's real. It's, it's a purpose. But he wants to reward you as you serve him, as you give gifts to him. The other thing, too, thing is, when you walk away from here today, ask yourself these questions. Am I investing in God? Am I investing in his work? Am I reading his word? Am I putting myself in places where God can change me through his word? Maybe you should be on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting if you learn how to pray. That's investing wisely. I'm learning how to talk to God. Come and join us. Investing in God's work, investing in God's power by his spirit. Invest in people. Bless people. Ask God, God, how can I be a blessing to somebody today? How can I serve them? It's so counterculture because everything's about me, about you. The gospel turns it around. No, it's about the other person. That's how you be blessed. Love your neighbor. Share the gospel. Encourage and exhort. Be the salt of the earth. In other words, be a disciple of Jesus. That's investing wisely. Let these two boundaries, let these two things form the boundaries of your life and how you make your choices. Now, if your life is not founded on Christ, then the choice is either to make Christ your foundation or to walk away. It's really that simple. It will always be either your will or his will. And I, I pray that you choose that it's his will. And if you need more information about that, come and see me after the service. But for those of us who have the foundation, maybe it's time for a spiritual checkup. If you happen to have a doctor in Montreal, you may go for an annual physical, a checkup. See how you're doing. Same thing as spiritual. A spiritual checkup. How do you spend your time? What are your priorities? How can you align yourself with Christ's priorities? So they become yours. This is how you build wisely on the foundation, on a personal level. On a corporate level, in two weeks we're having our outdoor service and picnic in the park, just over here. If somebody comes and says, hey, can you help me do this? Yes. I want to invest. I'm going to be there. What should I do? 
What should I wear? Some sunscreen? Yes. <laughs> a month from now, and this is being organized by skillful people in this church, we're going to have a Sunday called the Parade of Ministries. An opportunity to you to see what we're doing in this church. Even it's a place for you to serve in an existing ministry. Even it's a whole brand new ministry we haven't thought about yet that's for you. Because we want you to invest wisely. We want to provide opportunities for you to invest wisely. So it means we're going to get maybe in your face and say, well, you know, what, what, what are you doing? Are you investing wisely? Because we care about each other. Because we want to walk together as we build lives together and our church together wisely. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our foundation. You are late in our lives. You are the reason why we exist. You are the air we breathe, the thoughts that run through our minds. You fill us with your your spirit. You've made us new so that we can build on you. Jesus, I pray that you would take your words this morning, your scripture, and that you would embed it in our hearts, that we would long to invest our lives in you, and things that you value. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.